Church, this morning I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some paperback Bibles that are nearby you on the seat nearby. We would love it if you would grab that, turn there. Feel free to help the kids find it, or kids, feel free to help your parents find where Acts is. You can sing the song with them, and uh, we'll make our way to Acts chapter 6. Now, you'll notice that Titus is up here with me. Many of the kids know Titus because he spends a lot of time in CB Kids serving with uh, you back there and learning about the gospel and sharing that. Uh, He is up here because we have a very lengthy reading to make this morning, and he's going to help me out with that. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 6, we're actually going to go all the way through Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And the main thing that I want for you today to hear from this story is I want you to hear it, okay, first of all, which means you're going to have to listen. And then I want you to remember it. I want the Holy Spirit to inform and encourage his church by it this morning. And I want the children, especially who are present here, perhaps for the first time, to hear and receive the story that Stephen has for us. I hope that none of us would say that's too familiar for me to pay attention to, but that all of us would lean in and hear this incredible story that Stephen, the first martyr, has to share with us. Now, this morning I want our church to come to understand more deeply That the story, uh, our story as a people stretches far back beyond the planting of this particular church plant. And that our story stretches further back than perhaps the first time you ever gathered with us. Our story together began with the work of God in history to reveal the hope that a people might actually know him a promise that he gave to a particular people that he then through that people extends to the nations and comes to us that we might know God and actually have fellowship with him. Our story is deeply wrapped up in the story of God among the Israelite people, a story that we're going to hear a lot about this morning in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. And because we are human... Their failures, their failure to listen to the Lord and his prophets resonates with our own failures, failures that we've already begun to confess this morning. And because we share together in redemption in Jesus, a new creation, we resonate with their hope. Their hope becomes our hope. And so let's listen. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear this morning. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not understand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men and who said, 
We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as the possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, 
and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came from the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Jacob, of Abraham, and of Isaac. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Repon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses had directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought, him, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. 
but it was Solomon who had built a house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, and he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, we confess and believe, and Lord, even in the reading of the word this morning, we have tried to walk indeed in the fact that we believe your word it is sure, is true, is powerful, is worth hearing and remembering. So Lord, I pray that you would take this reading, take our ears, take your profound truth and holiness and take our wandering, easily distracted, often rebellious ways. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, being given ears to hear, we would be cut to the heart and repent. And Lord, that we would come to be enamored with the promise and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would listen to your Spirit. Lord, we ask you for these things because... We fall short. There's none who seek God. Unless you have called us and enabled us to hear by your grace. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would bring salvation to homes this morning and you would bring encouragement to your church. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, the Holy One. Amen. I mentioned earlier, my hope this morning in the reading of this scripture is that you would hear it. 
I mean, it's, it's a lot of reading, right? And reading's not terribly popular these days anyway. Certainly the reading of the scriptures, we tend to go to a verse that's easy to read, quick to understand, familiar to us, so we would think, but without an understanding of the whole story of the scriptures, even those scriptures that would seem familiar actually are not familiar to us. We don't know what they really mean. We haven't heard the whole of the story. And so this morning, my hope is that you and we would hear the scriptures. And secondly, that we would begin to remember that we would begin to remember in such a way that we believe what's being said, that it has something to do with our God, that it has something to do with what He is doing in history, and that it has something to do with what He would do among us as His church this morning. The first thing that we see as we look at this story as it's being told is Stephen is accused. Now, let's take a moment to remember who Stephen is, okay? In Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, we have the church, and they are, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, what is the duty that they were being assigned to? What were these seven men being called out to? They were called out to the work of seeing to the feeding of widows, the care for a people who were being sidelined uh, at, at this point. And there was resolving a dispute in the church so the apostles could focus on the Word, the ministry of the Word and prayer. And so Stephen is one of the seven that were chosen to this work. In verse 4 it says, But we will, we will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the Word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. Now he's at the top of the list. The reason he's at the top of the list probably is because Luke is about to tell this incredible story that takes place just after this and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's extremely important information. It was important for us last week because it gave us really the qualifications of one who would serve among us. The one that we're supposed to look around and be pleased as in an, in, that would be in a position of directing the people of God in a variety of ways. We should look for a people who are full of faith and of the Holy Spirit more than anything else. But it also becomes important to us here. Stephen is a man who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 of our reading today, we are told that he is full of grace and power, that he is going about doing mighty deeds. That's important because he's not the only one in the chapter that we just read about that that's true of, is it? There are others that we're going to read about that are full of grace and power and that are rejected precisely because they bear witness to Jesus. They're in Stephen's own story. A major theme in this passage is that by rejecting Stephen, the people who heard him were actually rejecting the Spirit of God who had filled him and about whom he was bearing witness in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I find it interesting that our passage this morning begins by telling us that Stephen was going out in verse 8, full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so surely the reason they're so upset is because Stephen is doing great signs and wonders among the people, right? That's not the case. That's not why the crowd seized him. Verse 10 says, they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was what? Speaking. 
I think it's extremely important for us this morning. Again, we see the centrality of the preaching of the gospel. We can do lots of deeds in our community, and it may or may not bring offense. But if we speak of the Lord, who He is, and what that means for the people who would hear it, now that will cut to the heart, as we'll see. It's the preaching of the gospel that cuts to the heart. And the heart of Acts is a church bearing witness to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications for all who would hear that they must believe, repent, believe, be baptized, and so be saved. Now in Acts 6.15, the author of Acts, who is Luke, gives us a huge hint as to what's going on in this passage. Look at 6.15 with me. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And here's what was going on. Stephen was being accused of rejecting the temple and the law. His words were sounding a lot like the words of Jesus. And Jesus was accused of much the same things. And he ended up in much the same way as Stephen. Now, these are the two most basic ways. The the temple and the law were the two most basic ways that the people of God, up to this point in biblical history, have experienced the presence of God. I'll say it again. Listen. The temple and the law were the two most basic means by which the people of God, up to this point in redemption history, had experienced the presence of God. So if Stephen is messing with that, he's messing with their ability to know God. Right? And yet, here's this young man, who has been accused of blasphemy against the temple and the law, and he's shining like someone who had been in the presence of God himself. That theme is going to show up in the speech that Stephen is about to give. It begs the question, who really has been with God here? Is it the religious leaders who rejected Jesus and yet are pretending to defend the temple and the law? Are they the ones who have been with God? Or is it Stephen who is about to go into great detail to bear witness to Jesus? Is it he who has been with God? Now here's what we're going to do. I wish we had like four hours together to just sit down and remember the whole of the story and pull up the details of this incredible story that Stephen recounts. And it's astounding to me that Stephen pulls it up right there. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit of God had promised to give words to the witnesses. But these words come out of a man who knew these words already. He knew the story of the Scriptures. Do you know the story of the Scriptures? It's not just going to happen. I already told you we don't have enough time this morning or any of the Sunday mornings to tell the whole of the story. There's a work that needs to go on in our households to come to know the whole of the story. A work that's day after day, morning after morning, week after week, and year after year to be able to bear witness to this story. Walk through the steps of the story, and we're going to walk through very quickly in our remaining time. The story begins in verse 2 through 8 
of chapter 7 with the choosing of Abraham. It says in verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. You see that theme already? To be in the presence of God. Abraham knew God. Abraham was by grace called by God. Abraham was given a promise by God, not one that Abraham deserved. He was a nobody in a nowhere land. He was given a promise by God, and Abraham was blessed with a miraculous inheritance, one that he could not take hold of. He didn't even have any kids to receive the inheritance that the Lord had given him. And yet, through God's promise, in verse 8 it says, Abraham gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to the twelve patriarchs. You see, Abraham received a promise, and then God miraculously provided for a means by which that promise would continue. But you know what happened? Abraham died. He died. He was buried. And the promise didn't show up. You see, we have a problem. We have something that's developing in the Scriptures. That the promise is given, and yet the promise, the person to whom the promise was given dies, and the promise is not yet fully revealed. It was passed on. It was passed on to his son Isaac. Isaac passed it on to his son Jacob, and Jacob passed that promise on to his 12 sons, the 12 patriarchs. Abraham received a promise and he died. And while while he knew God, he didn't bring to pass the glorious hope of being called by God. He died and passed that hope on to the future generations. Now, verse 9 kind of skips a couple steps. Verse 9 moves on into the next section to Joseph's arrival in Egypt. Now, Joseph is one of the 12 patriarchs, one of the sons of Jacob. Now, what's interesting is Jacob's other name is Israel. Now, you've heard of the children of Israel, right? And I've always thought the children of Israel were just a bunch of people, like the children of a great nation. Well, it's actually the children of a dude named Israel. And there were 12 of them. It's really that simple. The tribes of Israel are the children of Israel. They had a dad. His name was Jacob or Israel. And Joseph is one of those children of Israel. And so would be all of the descendants that would multiply in the land of Egypt. He was sold into slavery by his brothers and brought into Egypt. He suffered much, though he was beginning to notice that he had something to bear witness to. Joseph ends up rising to power. Even though he began as a slave, he rises to power in Egypt over and over again by God's intervention and miraculous kindness. He becomes the means by which his brothers, who had previously brutally mistreated him, Joseph becomes the means by which his brothers were rescued from a severe famine in the land. In verse 9, it says, But God was with him. Do you see the theme? Right? Abraham was with God. Now Joseph is with God, the very presence of God being made known among mankind. In verse 10, it says, God gave him favor and wisdom. Now that's interesting too, isn't it? Do you remember Stephen? Stephen, full of grace and power. And now we have Joseph given favor and wisdom. Stephen filled with spirit and wisdom. 
It's amazing, miraculous, this rescue that God brings through Joseph, the descendant of Abraham, and the promise of knowing God. But do you know what happened to Joseph? The passage is clear, it tells us. Joseph died, just like Abraham, and still no realization of the great promise of dwelling with God. The people at this point are beginning to to arrive at an expectation of God's hope and rescue, but it's still not realized. We continue in verses 17 through 34. We move on to the next part of the story. Are you listening? Are you hearing it? Are you praying, Lord, give me faith to understand and to believe and to remember? The raising up of Moses. Verse 17 is really interesting. It says, but as the time of the promise drew near. Oh, Maybe this is it. Now we're going to talk about Moses. We're finally going to talk about the promise being fully realized among the people. They can finally breathe in the presence of God. Ah, now here it is. Moses is going to bring about the great salvation promised to Abraham so long ago. In verse 19, it says the people multiplied and became oppressed in the land of Egypt. In verse 22, it says that Moses rises up. And what is he? In verse 22, he's mighty in words and deeds. Well, isn't that interesting to see that phrase again? A man who is mighty in words and deeds in this passage. In verse 25, it continues. He he supposed, Moses did, that because God had raised him to the position of having a place in the palace and that he was mighty in words and deeds, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand that. Even Moses himself believes he's going to be a great rescuer of the people of God. But God says, no, 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 not yet. Because it turns out that it's by God's mighty hand that the people were brought out of Egypt. Only through his servant, Moses. Moses needs to learn how to be a servant and a messenger. Now Moses, in verse 31, it says that he hears the voice of the Lord. In verse 32, this is the same God still at work to fulfill the same promise. And what is he doing? He's come to Abraham. He's come and drawn near to Joseph. And here he is speaking with his voice to Moses in increasingly powerful ways. But Moses, but is Moses the means by which the people would finally receive the promise of living in the promise of God? Now let's check it out. Let's continue the story. How does it work out with Moses? Verses 35 through 43, we see the people rejecting the messenger and the promise. That's how it works out. Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He was sent by God to accomplish a work given by God among the people, and they rejected him. As we were reading it, did you notice that it says, this Moses, this man, this man, this one? We have an increasing expectation that the people of God ought to follow after those who are provided by God to be his messengers of salvation. Stephen, he's just getting heated up now. 
the, the story is reaching its climax. He's really getting to the powerful point of the whole story. Moses is God's means of rescue for the people of God. And what do they do? They reject him. That's what they do. He was mighty in words and deeds, called and equipped by God, and yet they rejected him, much like they reject Joseph was rejected by his brothers. You see, to reject the messengers of God is to reject the Holy Spirit of God who sent them. In verse 37, it says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. I think Moses at this point in his ministry has learned his place in the story. While he comes with a message of redemption and it's accomplished by the mighty hand of God, he is not the great redeemer. There is one who is still to come. Moses came to understand that. It's simply, he's simply another in a long line of those who would remind the people of God to hope in God. The hope of knowing God and living in His presence. Stephen establishes the idea that Moses and many of the Old Testament characters actually exist to point to another prophet, another rescuer, a redeemer that's still to come. Are they waiting? Well, it turns out the people of God came to call this one who would be anointed and who would come is the Messiah, the Christ who would come. I wonder... How are they going to treat him when he shows up? When that, pro- when that prophet who would finally come and be the rescuer, not just come with word of rescue, but be the rescuer, how are they going to treat him when he finally shows up? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. How will they treat the Messiah when he comes? Will they treat him like they've treated the prophets who came before? Verses 44 through 47 speaks of the temple that's made with hands. In verse 44 it says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. The tent was brought to the promised land where Solomon built the temple in a similar fashion as the tabernacle, the tent. The the temple represents and is the place where the worshipers of God could meet with God. Finally, they have a place where they can meet with God, right? Surely, they're going to obey all the means that God has given by which He could meet with them, right? Look at verses 48 through 53 as the story continues. And we're going to see very quickly is a failure to live in the presence of God. For all that, did they ever really get God? For all of the prophets that have been sent, from the first of creation, there's someone that's not talked about here, who one who was gifted the very presence of God, these two, Adam and Eve, in the presence of God in His beautiful garden. They too rejected God Himself and rebelled, lost the presence of God. Has the promise of the presence of God ever been really realized among the people in spite of all God's prophets sent with that promise? They had Abraham, they had Joseph, they had Moses and the tabernacle, and they had the temple, and they had all the prophets. But all this time they've been waiting upon the fulfillment of a promise. A prophet who would come, who would finally give the people God Himself. 
And when that promise came in the person of Jesus, the people treated Him the same as they treated the prophets who came before. That's Peter's point. The point is, these liars have accused Stephen of blaspheming, blaspheming against the temple and the law. When the reality of the Messiah to whom all the promise that came before pointed finally appeared, when the Messiah comes, the prophet that was promised, the people killed him just like they had repeatedly rejected God and his witnesses all along. Friends, that is our disposition. That is our nature to reject God, his promise, and his messengers. Then we come in verse 54 to the stoning of Stephen. After they heard these things, right? It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged. I was curious about this. This doesn't always happen to me when I'm reading the words. I just sort of receive them for what they say. Because we've got some wonderful translations. But I was curious, what is that word enraged getting at? Like what, like what kind of enraged? There's different kinds of, of angry. Were they just really, really angry? Interestingly, when I looked up that word enraged, it literally means that they were cut to the heart. Uh, that's interesting. It seems like that is often used in a positive way. Oh, I can't believe we've rejected the messengers. They were cut to the heart. But did they repent? You see, you could hear this morning. You could remember the whole thing. You could even feel very deeply the story that has been heard. You could be cut to the heart. But that does not mean that you have received the gift of the promise. They were enraged. They did not repent. They, they saw themselves in the story, and it rose up in a furtherance of their rebellion. They again reject another messenger. Instead, they continued their killing spree, continuing to reject the grace and power God had provided in the witness Stephen. You remember that at the beginning of the passage, it was said that Stephen had the face of an angel. Look at verse 55 with me. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Friends, in this passage, there is one person who has seen the presence of God. It's Stephen. All the religious leaders are making a fuss over Stephen's supposed blasphemy against the things of God, against the temple and the law, which the means of entrance into the presence of God, the experience of the nearness of God. And here's Stephen, who is being accused of blaspheming them, is actually bearing witness to the, to the person, Jesus, to whom they all pointed. And he alone has the presence of God. It's Stephen filled with the Spirit and wisdom who has been with God Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, this is what they lacked. You can be cut to the heart all day long, but apart from faith in Jesus Christ, it's nothing. This is the first martyr following the resurrection of Jesus. Not the first one to have died bearing witness to Christ, as did all of the prophets who came before the Messiah. 
But this is the first one following the death and resurrection of the Savior who has finally come to be Emmanuel, God, with us, who dies for that witness. And where is Jesus in all of this? What's he up to? Well, we know from other scriptures that following the resurrection and ascension, Jesus took his rightful seat at the right hand of God. He's he's seated at the right hand of God. There is a God-man on the throne of heaven. And he is ruling not only over his church, he's ruling over all of creation, and he will bring it all in submission to his great and glorious name. It will be established as his kingdom. But on this day, in this moment, Jesus is standing. He's standing. He's presiding over the homecoming of his messenger, of his witness, the homecoming of the church's first witness. That's what the word martyr means. I love that Stephen was a martyr before he died. He was a witness who had given his life to the telling of the great story of the presence of God made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Stephen has been with God. And he's been with God. He's not going to God. He has been with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And now Stephen is just going to go to sleep and wake in the actual presence of God in heaven. That tells me so many things. I'll tell you, one of the things it tells me is it tells me I don't want to wait to get to heaven to be with God. It tells me that one of the ways to be with God is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Many of you are doing many things to get to know Jesus, and I'm glad. I'm glad that there are disciples here who follow after the way of Christ. One of the greatest ways to draw near to Christ is to bear witness to him. Bear witness like the martyrs bear witness. Make him known among your heart, your household, your community, your workplace, your friendships, your extended family, and beyond to the ends of the world. I would long for two things for us out of this passage very quickly. I I, I would long that we would know the story. I, I wish we all together knew the story. For the children present and all who are here, that we would know the story that Stephen seems to know. and seem, He seems to think that it's worthwhile to encourage and convict. If you stood accused, could you recount the story of the Scriptures to which you have borne witness? I want to call us. Let's go know the story. Let's get to know the story. We're, we're going to do it this afternoon at the partnership course. We're just getting to know the story and its implications together. We're going to do it tomorrow morning when my family rises early to open the Scriptures. We're going to get to know the story there. What are the places where each one of us and in our households and in our community groups and so on, are we getting to know the whole story? Genesis to Revelation and all that it means. But that's not enough. You can know the story. They heard the words that Stephen said and even were cut to the heart and were enraged. 
My prayer is that we would also know Jesus. Jesus to whom the story bears witness. Really, nothing that Stephen told the leaders here was new to them. What they lacked was faith. They lacked faith to believe that all that the Scriptures tell point to the hope realized in the person and the work of Jesus. It's really interesting. Luke writes Acts. He writes this incredible account of the establishment of the church on the foundation of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus himself tells, I have to believe it was the same story that Stephen told. He tells a story from the Old Testament Scriptures and how they bear witness to himself. Friends, we ought to pay attention to the whole of the Scriptures. And so this morning I call you to trust Jesus as the one to whom the whole of the Scriptures point and the one and only means by which we can know and live in the presence of God. I want to call you very specifically every heart to be cut to the heart and receive the story, the good news of Jesus with faith this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our only hope is You. Our only knowledge about You comes because You are the first witness. You are the great proclaimer. And Lord, You have not abdicated the role of proclamation, but your spirit continues to proclaim alongside of these witnesses such as Stephen and the witnesses who are present here today who bear witness to your gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would proclaim to every heart today by your spirit and that you would grant faith to hear and believe, faith to cry out in repentance and say, those sinners, those rejectors, those lawbreakers and transgressors. That's me. And apart from Jesus, His death in my place, His resurrection so that I might have life in Him, His ascension and rule and return, apart from Him, I cannot be with God. But I pray that You would grant faith to the children. That You would grant faith to parents and everyone who is gathered here today. Thank You, Lord. We trust you for these things. If it would be so, it would be miracle, and we would rejoice and say, what a mighty deed our God has done in our midst today. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your great name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.